Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Evening. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have a great hour coming up. I've been thinking about this uh, day and this hour, and this is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. I bet you've got some things on your plate that are maybe troubling and kind of like all of us. We're stuff we have to take to the Lord and trust Him for the results. So know that I'm praying for you, and I want you to uh, give your trust to the Lord as I'm doing the same myself. So coming up on November 21st, we're going to do a uh, live studio event. Uh, so my friend Jeff Verdorn, who I know so many people love when he comes on the show, he's a great teacher. We're going to be talking about uh, parables, uh, the teaching of Jesus and the many parables. And it's going to be Thursday, November 21st at 7 o'clock right here at uh, the University of Northwestern in the Mel Johnson studio. We've got a beautiful room set aside. We've got uh, room for about 75 people, and the seats are filling fast. Tickets are free. All you have to do is go on MyFaithRadio.com and say, yeah, I'd love to come, and make sure you bring your Bible and a notebook, and we're going to have a great time. Again, that's November 21st. Go to MyFaithRadio.com. Get your tickets now. All right, in this hour, I'm going to talk to Dr. Bruce Ashford. He's going to talk about the justifiable reasons for war, and then just because the response was so big, I'd love for you to hear once again uh, Jonathan Kahn, who talked about his book, The Oracle. That's all coming up. We'll take 60 seconds and bring on Bruce. The happiest people. They're the ones with the vacation home on each continent. No. They're the ones in perfect health. No. They're the ones whose team wins the Super Bowl. Oh, uh, well, maybe. No. The happiest people are the most thankful people. Because when you focus on all that God has done for you, no matter what else is going on, it's really hard not to smile. So as you listen to Faith Radio, we hope you're inspired to live that kind of life every day. Connecting faith to life. Faith Radio. In the midst of the hardest seasons, Faith Radio is committed to pointing you back to Jesus. Even when it feels like my world is shaking, even when I've had all that I can take, I know you never let me go. Whoa. And even when the waters won't stop rising, even when I'm caught in the dead of the night, I know. In it together, Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. I sure have missed talking to Dr. Bruce Ashford. When I did the mornings, I talked to him all the time. Now I moved to the afternoons, and I hardly ever get a chance to chat with him, but today is changing all of that. He's the Provost and Professor of Theology and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, author of several books, all of which are outstanding. Bruce, welcome back to the show. Bill, thank you, man. It's great to be back on the show. Yeah, you've been writing some pretty interesting things in addition to books. You continue to blog and say a lot of thought-provoking stuff. So one of the things I want to talk to you about today is the whole idea of war. What are the different views of war and peace, my dear friend? Yeah, so, you know, logically, there are really only three categories on uh, war and peace. And uh, you've got 
two categories that are idealistic and one that is realistic. So one uh, view is what we call pacifism. Pacifists are idealists, and they believe that if we can all just kind of lay down our weapons, we can achieve justice and we can uh, achieve peace uh, through laying down our, our weapons. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got what we sometimes call crusaders or jihadis or militarists, and these are folks who think that they can achieve peace by picking up their weapons. And so whenever you find somebody evil enough or a country bad enough, you go attack it, and you play the world's uh, policeman. Mm. And almost always people who are militarists or jihadis or crusaders have a strong religious or ideological um, impetus. So both of those are idealistic, and I argue against them, and I'm a proponent of a realistic tradition called the just war tradition. And this tradition says, listen, none of us should want to go to war, but sometimes we have to. We have to, or, or or things won't be unjust. I mean, there's a, you know, you somebody attacks your own country. In most instances, you have to, uh, you know, in all instances, you have to defend, unless the, you know, defense will actually hurt your country more. Unless, um, and there are rules for how to go about waging war. You don't rape the women or kill the children, for example. Right. So, anyway, I'm a proponent of the just war tradition. I'm definitely not a pacifist, and uh, don't ever want to be a crusader or a jihadi. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, uh, Bruce, when I hear people uh, say, well, why can't there just be entire world peace? And I think from the beginning of the very first family, there was a murder. And wars and murders has never stopped. Why do you think there would be any sense of everyone laying down their weapons for the rest of time yeah, I mean, to ever, I mean, ever even I, happen? I mean, what do you... What, <laughs> What in the world do we have more proof of than human evil? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, there's nothing that has more proof than that. And I think one of the problems in the West is that there are so many people now who live their lives without any real reference to God, mm-hmm. and so all of the solutions that they've got in life are solutions that humans bring to the table, and they keep hoping that if we can just um, develop the right technologies, and if we can just put out the right kind of messaging and get rid of the wrong kind of people, we can create a world that's uh, that, that doesn't have war, mm-hmm. that's not evil. But evil is in the human heart. It's embedded in every human heart. And so as Christians, we know there'll never be a time when we can get rid of evil. That will only come when Christ returns and wages a war of crusade. It's okay for God to wage a war of crusade, and he will defeat his enemies and install a one-world government and a one-party system. But until then... Um, we're going to have to take a different different approach. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you just answered this, Bruce, but let me just ask when and, and why, when is it moral for a Christian to engage in war? Because you talk about this, yeah, just, this so, just war. Is that what you called it? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, the just war tradition, um, components of it we find in the Bible. Now, it's interesting. The Bible does allow for crusade, but only under one instance. Um when God commands the war and when he leads it himself. And that happened a few times with Israel, and it will happen again in the end when Christ returns. But never are we allowed to wage a war of crusade. And so um, in the other wars in the Bible, what you see is you see these rules where God, like in the book of Amos, tells Israel, um, listen, 
um, where, where Amos actually prophesies against nations that commit war crimes and gives them some rules. For example, you don't um, you don't kill pregnant women. You don't burn down the fruit trees, um, Amos says. And so, in other words, you you fight the soldiers, not the people. And so it gives some some sort of beginning rules. But then the just war tradition developed as years went by, and it was not just Christians, but also Greek and Roman thinkers who contributed to it. And now there's basically two sets of principles that we use when deciding whether or not to go to war and how to go to war. So the first question, whether or not to go to war. And I'll just list uh, briefly eight principles. Number one, you <laughs> have right. to have you, you have to have a just cause. You have okay. to be trying to correct a specific in, injustice. You can't just say, "Oh, we think they're bad. We're going to go fight them." Number two, you have to have a legitimate authority declaring war. In our country, it's Congress. Yes. Um, so, um, number three, you have to have the right intent, and the right intent is to restore justice. It's not to make your country bigger. It's not to glorify your nation and show how awesome you are. Number four, there's comparative justice. In other words, the moral merit on our side must outweigh the moral merit on the other side. Say more about that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you've got two countries who are upset with each other, often both countries have a right to be. You know, both countries have done something wrong. But it's okay for my country, Nation A, to go to war if it's clear that we're mostly right and they're mostly wrong. So that's another component. Uh, Fifth is last resort. You want to go to war only after exhausting all realistic options. Mm-hmm. Now, pacifists, we'll come back and criticize them later, um, will use the category of last resort, hijack it, and use it to try to get a country to never go to war. They'll always think of one more thing you could do mm-hmm. before you know, punishing Saddam for invading Kuwait. So last resort just means you exhausted realistic options. Six is probability of success. Um, Luke fourteen twenty five through thirty three, Jesus hinted at it. You got to sit down and figure out if you can win the thing. It doesn't mean that you're definitely going to win it, but why would you go to war if if you just know that your troops are going to get slaughtered? Uh, number seven, proportionality of projected results. The benefits of going to war have to outweigh uh, the costs. In other words, sometimes you just got to turn your cheek as a country mm-hmm. because going to war to, to correct an injustice. Actually, it doesn't benefit your country to do it. And then finally, eighth is the right spirit. So you want to go to war with a spirit of regret rather than one of hatred or glee. And President H.W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, the dad, actually said that, exactly that, to to Saddam Hussein. He said, listen, um, if you don't get out of Kuwait, we will wage war. We've tried every means possible. We're going to correct this injustice, and we do this with a spirit of great regret, wishing that we didn't have to do it. And that was exactly the right way to put it. So those are the the, uh, principles for deciding whether or not to go to war. Now, there are some principles for how how to actually carry out a war. Do you you want me to work through those? Oh, please. I think what we'll do is we'll take a break uh, real quick, Bruce, and then when we come back, we can go into, uh, into that. Dr. Bruce Ashford is my guest. We'll take a uh, short break and be right back.
Welcome back to the show. I'm awfully glad to be speaking to Dr. Bruce Ashford. Um, we are chatting about war and peace today. And Bruce, right before we went to the break, you were going to give me a, another list of, of uh, reasons supporting the just war. So please go, yeah. go into those. Yeah, and I'll mention, if you're out there in radio land right now and you want to do a little bit more reading on this, I've written a book entitled Letters to an American Christian, uh, which is a collection of very brief letters to an American Christian on social, cultural, and political issues. A very short chapter, six, seven pages each, and there is a chapter in there that outlines these principles on when war is justified and when it's not. So the next set of principles uh, we want to talk about is if we've already decided to go to war, what are the rules under which we should wage war? Because all is not fair in love and war. True. You know, that's a, that never has a more false statement been made, not in God's mind at least. So we'll give just seven principles briefly. One is discrimination. And basically you want to discrim- discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. So we don't want American troops going after non-combatants. Now, combatant and non-combatant is not exactly the same thing as soldier and civilian. Because in a war, you might have civilians who are taking up arms, who aren't part of the military and taking up arms against us, and we have every right to kill them. But non-combatants, we don't ever want our American soldiers to kill women and children. You know, and, and it's rebuked in the Bible, Amos one thirteen, that God rebukes the Ammonites for hurting pregnant women. Um, terrorism makes this very difficult because often terrorists purposefully understand that we want to wage war morally, and so they hide their hide themselves behind civilians, mm-hmm. and so it makes things very difficult. Second principle is proportionality, and that is that you want to use more force than necessary to achieve legitimate goals. So take the first Gulf War again. It would not have been right for uh, George H.W. Bush to nuke the city of Baghdad and kill, you know, eight million people or however many people live in in, uh, in Baghdad. That's disproportionate. What he did was exactly right. He sent ground troops to go in and defeat uh, Saddam's ground troops. That's a proportionate response. Third principle is avoidance of evil means. All right. You know, we're not supposed to use evil means even for a righteous cause. And um, a lot of Americans think that it is okay to sin in order to win in a lot of different arenas. Um, and it, but it's not okay. And, uh, for example, rape, pillage, plunder, destroying the uh, water sources and food sources for the civilian population, desecrating holy sites. So these are the things that we – uh, don't do and won't do. Fourth principle is good faith. And that is you want to try to treat enemy combatants as human beings, even if you're going to kill them, uh, you, even if you know that you, you're going over there intending to kill them. And so what do I mean by that? What is, well, when we take a prisoner of war, we want to treat them well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when it comes to terrorists, um, that's a little bit more like a police action, and you're dealing with a criminal and so I think interrogation and some kinds of enhanced interrogation can be um, okay. Fifth is probability of success. And this principle just says, listen, once you know that your case is futile, stop fighting. If you know you're going to lose, because then the only thing you're doing is leading your own men to a slaughter. Mm-hmm. So, um, then another one that's similar to that is proportionality of projected results. And that is that if – 
if you're in the middle of fighting and you realize, listen, it's going to take a lot more to win this than we thought, and therefore the costs outweigh the benefits, then you need to go home, pack them up and go home. And then number seven is right spirit, and that's just the same as we mentioned earlier, that we want to wage war of regret rather than flee because war is a tragic you know, necessity, not something we delight in as a nation. Um, so those are the principles, and for the most part, the United States, you know, no war is waged in a perfectly just manner, but the United States does have rules of engagement that are based upon just war theory. And mm-hmm. the very principles that I just mentioned, and our troops, most of them have done remarkably well, um, although some of them have not. You know, that's why you have um, their uh, court-martial. Mm-hmm. Some troops will be. But if we have a minute, could I take a shot or two at the pacifists? Oh, please. I'd love to hear that. <laughs> that's probably a bad way to put it. I mean, they're such nice people. I don't they mean are. that. But... Um, but, you know, so there are especially a number of Christian pacifists, and I want to point out some of the arguments they make. How much time do we have left? we got three or four minutes? I'll give you another 90 minutes. Take your time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so Christian pacifists, you know, will look at the Bible's teachings about peace and draw conclusions from it that I wouldn't draw. For example, Jesus blesses people who are peacemakers, Matthew 5, 9. He says to reject eye for eye, tooth for tooth ethic, and to love even our enemies. All of this in uh, Sermon on the Mount. But then also you have Jesus rebuking Peter when Peter drew his sword to defend Jesus. And you have you know Paul urging Christians to live in peace with one another. And for these, and, and, uh, and then one other big reason is they just say, listen, how ironic would it be for you? Christians who follow a Messiah who refuse to defend himself, how ironic would it be for you to always focus on defending yourself? So if he, you know, eschewed violence, then you ought to eschew it also. So um, I would come back and try to answer each of those and say, um, one thing that I would say is that you have to take the Old Testament and New Testament into account. And the Old Testament does give some very clear statements that it is just to go to war sometimes. It even gives some rules for how to fight war. And the reason that the New Testament, that Jesus didn't defend himself, is he was on a very specific mission, to die for our sins. And that is not a mission that any of us share with him. God is not called, God the Father has not called us to die to pay for the sins of the world. And that's why Jesus' refusal to defend himself doesn't apply to us. And so then I would come back to the pacifist and say, listen, when Jesus said to be peaceful, he was, yes, he's referring specifically to interpersonal relationships, that when somebody does something wrong to us, our first impulse shouldn't be to slap them back mm-hmm. or to do something wrong to them, but to bring them into the kingdom. And then you've got just lots of other passages. I mean, Jesus used force to cleanse the temple, John 2. He actually commanded his disciples to carry swords for self-defense in Luke 22. And then in several other passages, he alludes to the use of force, Luke 14, 25 through 33, you know, and then one day he's going to return one day uh, to defeat his enemies and set the world to rights. And then you actually brought up, you know, you brought up one of two important Christian doctrines. I don't want to, you mentioned that evil will never go away in this world, uh, that it resides deep in the human heart, and that against the pacifist, 
we say, listen, even if we lay down our arms, that's not going to eliminate war. That's mm-hmm. just going to let our friends and loved ones be laid to waste. And uh, and so there will always be evil, and we can't always fight evil with peace talks and negotiations. Sometimes we have to go to war. Then the, the final teaching is, is the doctrine of Christian love, um, that in our interpersonal relationships, one of the ways we love our neighbors is is by uh, overlooking their offenses. But that love also means at a social and political level, sometimes we love our neighbors by using lethal force to protect them during war. So one of love's instruments is justice, and one of justice's instruments is force. So basically, in a nutshell, we want to pray for peace and hope for peace, but be prepared for war. Yeah, that's so interesting, Bruce. It's so well laid out, too. I so appreciate you doing this. Um, what about, is it okay to rejoice in the death of our enemies? Yeah, I mean, I think we want to vote. I think the focus of our joy should be in a victory rather than on the fact that a specific person is dead. But mm-hmm. I, I think they're, I don't think it's wrong to have rejoiced that uh, the evil mastermind of al-Qaeda mm-hmm. was killed. You know, that that's one thing. A, a different scenario is like in World War One when you had two governments fighting each other. You know, you had European governments shooting machine, forcing their young people to shoot machine guns at each other for years on end. I think in those instances, soldiers in, in those wars, they weren't specifically delighted when they killed somebody on the other side. It wasn't like they were overjoyed that they killed that particular person. In fact, they would take breaks, have ceasefires on holidays, and actually share cigarettes and food with each other. That's crazy. Across uh, battle lines, you yeah. know. But, yeah, I think our joy should focus usually more on uh, the, the justice that we're trying to achieve rather than a, a specific person's life being taken. It is uh, so important, I think, that we as believers think through this, and you've certainly helped us do this, Bruce. I, it's, it's really, I'm going to have to go through, and I took lots of notes, just so you know. And I'll go back. Well, and, listen, if, if if and my feelings are going to be hurt if you don't have me back on the show again. No, no, you'll you'll get back on for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's always great to talk to, you, and this is a, a very important topic, and it's something I believe, like I'll, I'll repeat myself because I don't have a lot of material, is we need to be informed <laughs> as believers. We know how to we we need to know how to think through this. Well, Bill, thanks a million for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I do want to remind everybody out in Radio Land that um, if you want. Uh, uh, a brief read, Letters to an American Christian, is available on Amazon.com, and it's on sale for 50% off right now, so nice. less than 10 bucks. That's awesome. And you go to Amazon or anywhere you buy books, Letter to an American Christian, Bruce Riley Ashford. You will uh, enjoy that book. I've read it myself. It's an awesome book. Well, Bruce, thanks for doing the show, and I'll look forward to the next time we get a chance to chat. Great. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun, Bill. You Appreciate bet. it. Dr. Bruce Ashford has been my guest. Go to BruceAshford.net, BruceAshford.net to learn more about him. We will take a short break and be right back. Radio.
absolutely thrilled to have uh, Jonathan Kahn as my guest. Uh, his new book, The Oracle, after just a couple of days, uh, has soared on the New York Times bestsellers list. He is uh, quite a prophetic voice in this generation, and uh, awfully excited to have him on the show. Jonathan, welcome. Great to be with you, Bill. Yeah. You know, I uh, heard and discovered that you were leading people to Christ before you were even convinced yourself. <laughs> that, that is a paradox, isn't it? It kind um, of is, but I'd love for you to tell our listeners about yeah, that. Yeah, well, well I was, when I was eight years old, I became an atheist. Um, <laughs> you know, I was, in, I was in Hebrew school, and uh-huh. I just didn't see the God of the Bible in, in the synagogue, you know. And, um, and so, but then I realized there had to be more, that, you know, there, there can't, the atheism doesn't work. There's got to be a reason. So I started seeking everything I could, and I start, one day I picked up a book by accident. I thought it was a UFO book, but it was The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And this is about <laughs> biblical prophecy coming true in our generation. And mm-hmm. I, I, I had no idea about this, and that just blew me away, and I couldn't argue it. So I'm telling all my friends about it, and I'm preaching to them. And tell them I'm not saved. I'm not born again, but I'm telling all my friends about it, and I'm winning them to the Lord. <laughs> so That's just that, wild. That went, that went on for a while. That's <laughs> wild. And you tried to follow in the footsteps of, of Moses, didn't you, to go up on a mountain to try to go meet God? Yeah, well, I didn't know, you know, yeah, what happened was I, I, I made a deal with God because I, I believed in my head, but I didn't want to follow him. So I said, all right, Lord, if you give me a long life, I'll accept you when I'm on my deathbed. <laughs> so uh-huh. so right, right after I prayed that, I was almost killed twice. And the wow. second time, I'm in a Fort Pinto to a, heading to a train track at night. And long story short, um, I got hit by a train. And and the car, I'm in a Fort Pinto, it goes up like aluminum foil. I know. And, the only only guy I do was call out to God. So I called out to God, and the car was destroyed, and I didn't get a scratch. So I said, "Lord, can we renegotiate?" And so, so I made a new deal, and that is that I said, "Okay, Lord, I'll accept you. I'll follow you when I turn 20." And said, "Don't just don't kill me until then." <laughs> so on my 20th birthday, like a man who whose you know contract had run out, I didn't know how to get saved. I mean, I but I but I was reading the Bible and I was listening to Christian radio. I remember from Hebrew school that God met Moses on a mountain and Elijah on a mountain. So I found a mountain, you know, in the middle of the night, and I went to the top of it, kneeled down, and gave my life to the Lord. Oh, that's just so beautiful. I love that yeah. story. That's yeah. so great. You know, I've been uh, a believer myself for decades and decades and decades, and. Every once in a while, you hear little tidbits, and I, I heard when you were teaching on uh, television, you were talking about Moses approaching the burning bush and walking away saying, you know, who, who should I tell them sent me? And, you, and God said, tell them I am. And, and then you made that beautiful correlation between every time you go to introduce yourself, I am, Jonathan yes. Kahn, that you're always presenting God prior to yourself. I was one of those aha moments where I went, oh, is that good? <laughs> Yeah, God, God, good? God is amazing with that. Yes, I, I mean, I, I, I love it too. I, mean, I just love being blown away by that. You know, I, by the Lord. It, it's. I think that's early on, actually, in the Book of Mysteries. I think that's one. I put it as one of the first ones because it's, it's it. I mean, you cannot talk about yourself really without talking about God first, and because we exist by Him, no matter who you are. An atheist has to say His name, you know, and we have to put Him first, and we have to live from Him. You know, we're saying it all the time. We have to live it. Yeah. So could an ancient prophecy in the middle of the desert, like 3,000 years ago, be orchestrating and determining the events of our day? Now, you address that in your book, The Oracle. Um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting to think that some of the most famous people right now um, in history and in current events yeah. could be linked to this mystery. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. This is the Oracle's got to be the largest mystery I've ever written about or, on, or opened up. And it is so big that it really 
really is the mystery or the secret behind what has been the past, what is happening right now, current events, even the president, um, what is yet to come. It's really the blueprint of the end times. Um, but not only that, it's not just a big a prophetic thing, a historic thing. It's like behind everything. I mean, from, from Moses to Mark Twain, from Jeremiah to Donald Trump, but it's also the, the master blueprint of our lives, you know, and each of our lives. So, I mean, it, it is the really, it's really linked to salvation. It's to eternity. The, the oracle, to, to give an idea of this, and it's not just like, it's not some vague kind of thing. It's specific. I mean, it gives specific dates, times, uh, exact times when things have to happen or had to have happened because of the Bible. Um, and it's showing, you know, we live in a culture that's trying to push God out and saying, you know, well, yeah, we're past that. And, you know, God, that that's stories and all that. Well, well the Oracle is saying, no, the, the God of the Bible is, is alive and well. And in the same way that he moved uh, empires and kings, and every he's doing it today behind everything from the rise of America, the world wars, the rise and fall of empires, Israel, of course, um, and and even American elections. I mean, but everything. So, so to get an idea, just to, to kind of set the stage, imagine if there were scrolls across the world, and and it, it's appointed that the people will open the scrolls at set days, and when they open it, they'll read a set appointed scripture. And when they read or recite the scripture, those events are start happening in the world. Now, this is not, this is not, sounds great fantasy, but it's real. And what if we could know what those scriptures, appointed scriptures were? Well, that's one of the mysteries that runs through the oracle. Another one is the, that of the Jubilee, and that is simply, you know, it's the year of restoration and all that. Well, what if all these gigantic events, like the rebirth of Israel, or the or the you know, coming back to Israel, the restoration of the Jewish people, and all these prophetic events in our time, are timed to the mystery of the Jubilee? Well, they are, and that's one of the other streams through the Oracle. And the last thing to know, just before, I know we'll get into specifics, but the last thing is that, like the Harbinger, the Oracle is, is written, everything in it is, is real, it's fact, you can Google it, it's real, but it's revealed through a narrative. So there's a man called an Oracle, who, you know, in the, in the desert, on a mountain who is opening up these mysteries through these seven doors of and when you open up these seven doors there's there's like about maybe eight mister major revelations in it but we'll probably open, be able to open up some of the doors and get to maybe one or two of them but just that would that should set the stage of what's in the oracle yeah fantastic let's uh maybe just take a look uh, through the first door which would be the stranger yeah well Moses, before he dies, he gives a word to Israel. He prophesies. He's the first one to prophesy about the end times. And he's the one, he says that in the last days, it says the, the Jewish people will be scattered to the ends of the earth. And of course they were. And he says that in the last days, God's going to bring them back to the land. And the, the, but before he, and he did, but before he does that, Moses says, a foreigner, a stranger is going to come from far away. He's going to come to the land, which is going to be a desolate wasteland desert, uh, barren. And the stranger is going to bear witness of the desolation and, how, and its hopelessness. And then right after that, is going to come, that's when comes the prophecy, God's going to bring back the Jewish people. Did this sign ever happen? Well, it did. Man mm-hmm. comes from across the world, comes to the to the, the land of Israel at its most desolate state, bears witness of the desolation, actually writes a book about it, and the man's name is Mark Twain. 
Mark Twain actually fulfilled biblical prophecy. You know, Moses said that he'll say certain words. Well, Mark Twain says the exact words that Moses said he would say. And on, on the last day, right, right after he comes, this is the year 1867. This is going to be the beginning year of the mystery. Really, in many ways, the end times as we know it is set in motion while all these kind of mysterious things start happening in the land after the stranger comes. And it's going to be preparing the land for the return of the Jewish people. And then right after it, the Jewish people are going to begin to return. But on the the last day that Mark Twain was in the land, or, or actually his last full day and night in Jerusalem, it's the peak of his journey, he's wandering the streets of Israel, he hear, and he, he hears the, the chanting, it's the Sabbath, they open up the scrolls on the Sabbath, and there's an appointed word. What is the appointed word for that day that they're chanting? The word is the prophecy, the stranger shall come to the land and bear witness. So here he is walking, has no idea, and, and you know, for 2,000 years, the Jewish people have been praying, Lord, hear our prayers, you know, um, be merciful to us and bring us back to the land. Hear our prayer, be merciful, bring us back. Well, Mark Twain's, was, his name wasn't Mark Twain, it was Samuel Clemens. Samuel's Hebrew. It means the Lord has heard, and Clemens means and has been merciful. Wow. Okay, Jonathan, you're like 37 times smarter than me, so I'm having a hard time even asking good questions right now. That is so fascinating. No. But that's like a piece of hard candy. You've got to put that in your mouth slowly and let yes. it dissolve. Oh, there's so much. Yeah, yes. there is so much. So uh, maybe would you take us uh, through the second door, the, the Jubilee yeah. event? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, we'll just be able to touch on these things. But sure. Yeah, what happens if you count 50 years from that first, that first, that year, that key year, 1867? Well, Jubilee. Well, what's the next year? It's going to be, it's going to take us to 1917. And did anything happen? Gigantic things happen. It is prophetic that world war happens. The Ottoman Empire that has the land of Israel begins to crumble in the year of Jubilee. And that same year, God raises up people uh, to Arthur Balfour to be in the British Empire, who issues the Balfour Declaration, which says the land of Israel shall return to the Jewish people. Now, what has happened in the Jubilee? It says the land shall return to the people. Mm-hmm. And in that same year, same year, Allenby, another Christian, General Allenby is a Christian, he enters the land, and he, he enters Jerusalem, and he liberates it for the Jewish people. And an amazing thing, I'll tell you one, there's so many mysteries, this is the second door in the in the, the oracle, but I'll just mention one mystery of it. That is that there's a number in Daniel that indicates... It, it's given for the time that the the occupier of the land has to leave. It, it's up to this time, and the number is 1335. And there's there's several uh, fulfillments linked to days, but the number 1335 is linked to when the occupier has to leave. Well. All of a sudden, in the year 1917, this jubilee year, the number 1335 starts appearing throughout the land. Starts coming, starts appearing on coins. Starts appearing everywhere: Israel, Egypt, or the Middle East. Why? It turns out on the Muslim calendar that year is the is the year 1335. The number in Daniel that the that the occupier has to leave. They have, that's the year that they leave, and it's also all converges on the jubilee. I mean, who can put this all together? Wow, wow! That just makes me want to stand up and cheer. <laughs> And as a Jewish person, you want to stand up and cheer even louder, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Always a good, good idea to cheer God. Oh, I agree. I agree. Okay, what is the, uh, the, the number of the end? Well, that's what that's what uh, that's the thirteen thirty five. Okay, okay. Uh, I just want to make sure I understood yeah, that yeah. Then correctly. You got it. <laughs> you got yeah. it. Yeah. And I'll tell you about another thing that happened, and this is going to link to the third door. And I'm going very quick because we can just touch on it. But the third door. Um, he, here's the thing. There's a guy named Theodore Herzl. So some people have heard of him. Some have not. He's the father of Israel. I mean, in, he's the visionary who saw Israel years before it ever happened. Um, and the thing is, a Jewish man. He gathers a world congress together of Zion, of the first Zionist congress. Now, 
he's the father of Zionism. It simply means Zion, that the Jewish people to return to Zion. But when he does, he writes down a prophecy. He says, today, he says, he says I founded the Jewish state. He says, now the whole world would laugh at me if I said it out loud. But he says, the whole world is going to know it in 50 years' time. That's Jubilee. Okay, mm-hmm. so when did he say it? He said it in 1897. He actually wrote it down. So that takes you, what's the 50th year? 1947, the year that Israel is voted back into wow. the world, and the whole world knows it. Not only that, but, but Bill, I'm led to go deeper, and I look at the date, that he, you know, the U.N. resolution that voted Israel, it's got a date on it, the, the, the plan. It, the date is September 3rd, 1947. Well, well, when you go back 50 years, it takes you to September 3rd, 1897. That's the exact date that Herzl penned the prophecy. It was fulfilled 50 years to the exact day. Wow. Do you even sleep anymore, or do you just stay awake no. all the time? No, that's it. <laughs> that's it. I've been, I've been blown away for about a year and a half with this. And before I wrote, and I had about, about 3,000 pages of like, whoa, Lord, whoa, Lord, whoa. And the challenge was, how do you get 3,000 pages into a book that's less than 300 pages? So, but, I, but that's the oracle. Yeah, yeah. Let me take a little break. Jonathan Kahn is my guest. The book we're chatting about is already a New York Times bestseller, The Oracle, The Jubilee and Mysteries Unveiled. Take a short break and be right back with Jonathan. back to the show. Awfully glad to be having uh, a discussion with Jonathan Kahn about his new book called The Oracle. It's already soared to the New York Times bestseller list. That happened quickly. And uh, it's just a fascinating conversation. If you missed any of this, uh, hit rewind and start over from scratch and get it from the beginning. When Israel was born, the, the, when it's announced, it was a lot of people in prophecy know it, May 14th, 1948, you know, they announced yes. Israel's going to be born. It turns out it's a Sabbath, Friday. And so what happens is that means there's an appointed word. So there's a word that's appointed from ages past to be read, the scrolls to be opened among the Jewish people, and read on that day, May 14th, 1948, from ages past. What's the word that's appointed? The word is the prophecy God says, in that day, I will raise up the fallen tabernacle of David. I will end the exile of my people. I will bring them back to the land. I will restore the nation as in ancient times. They will rebuild the ancient cities, the fallen cities. They'll replant the land, and nobody will take them out of the land. It's the prophecy of the resurrection of Israel. And, it, and so all around the world, there's chanting the prophecy of the resurrection of Israel as Israel is being resurrected from the dead on the exact day. Now, I'll tell you one more thing linked to this third door that we're okay. talking about. There's seven doors in the oracle for those who know. So, and that is this. Well, the first time that God ever told Israel, the Jewish people, you shall return. You shall return to your ancestral land is actually in the law of the Jubilee. And in, you know, in, in Israel, when they write down dates, the way you do it in Hebrew is you write down, use Hebrew letters. Every Hebrew letter has a, has a number value. That's not something mystical. That's the way they do it. Well, the, the, when God said, you shall return, it's one Hebrew word in that thing. It's tashavu. That adds up. The numbers add Add up to the year 1948, the year that Israel returned into the world. That was there for 3,000 years wow. from Moses. You know, wow. unbelievable. But, but now, now let me get. I'll get to about the next door. If you take the um, and again, we're only 
scratching the surface of the doorknob. Yeah. But if you but if you take the first, we said 1867. Now count the first jubilee year. You count 50 years, 1917. Count when's the next jubilee year? It takes you to 1967. Anything happen then? Well, listen. Jesus said he's not returning until the Jewish people come back to Jerusalem. I mean, they'll say Baruch Haba, blessed is he. They got to do. It. He said it in Jerusalem. Well, the thing about this is. 1967 is a jubilee year, and what happens is that you know Israel doesn't ask for this, but it happens. The the Six Day War happens, and it's actually begun by the Soviet Union. So the godless Soviet Union is going to fulfill biblical prophecy, and by the end of that war. Israeli soldiers are entering the gates of Jerusalem. What does the Jubilee say? It says, everyone shall return to their ancestral possessions. So after 2,000 years, the Israeli soldiers enter the gates, they get to the Western Wall, they cry, they pray, and, and they return, okay, in the year of Jubilee. But there's, some, there's a prophecy, Bill, that, that says that in, in Isaiah, it says, God, in that day, God will fight for Jerusalem like the lion, like a lion and the young lion. He'll, fi- he'll fight for that hill, he'll fight for that mountain, that's the Temple Mount, like a lion, a young lion. Well, the amazing thing is this. How did Israel get Jerusalem? They sent a colonel to circle the hills of, around Jerusalem. His name is Colonel Ari. In Hebrew, Ari means the lion. Colonel Lion, okay? So it says Galifai. The guy who's in charge of the war over Jerusalem is a guy named Arik Regev. His name means the lion. Hmm. He gives the word to take Jerusalem to another guy who's outside the gates, an intelligence officer named Arik Achman. His name means the lion. He finally sends words to the, to the Mount of Olives where there are paratroopers waiting with their commander, a guy named Mata Gor, and he says, okay, guys, it's time. He, they, he leads them into Jerusalem. His name, he's a different name, Mata Gor, and Bagor means the young lion. So here, the first two people in the gates in, in the Six-Day War, the first in Jerusalem are, are this guy, Matagor and Ark Achman, and, and they get to the Temple Mount. Well, their names in Hebrew mean the lion and the young lion. The prophecy of Isaiah says God will fight for that mountain as the lion and the young lion. And what, <laughs> what I mean, amazing. I mean, and listen, think about this, Bill. Every one of them had to be born with the name lion I right. mean, for, for that day, you know. And they, what gate did they go through to... The Lion's Gate. So what's it all about? You know, the Messiah came 2,000 years ago as a lamb through the gate. He's coming again as a lion. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Let me me throw you one more from the – from the this is the fourth door, and again, there's okay. so many, but this yeah. is one. Okay, when the Jubilee comes, and, it, and, it, and the, the one we just said is the Day of the Lions in the book, but this one is called the Jubilee in Man. And the thing is that when the Jubilee comes, what happens? It says you'll sound the horn. You'll sound the horn. Well, did the horn ever sound? Did, did the trumpet sound on the Jubilee? Well, when the, when, the, when the soldiers go through the gates and when they get to the Temple Mount, they hear a sound. It's the sound of the trumpet. It's the sound of Jubilee. And why? It's because a guy sounding this shofar, and it's not he's, he's not trying to fulfill this. He's not reading the oracle. And he's not trying to fulfill the Jubilee. He's just doing it for another reason. He sounds at the exact moment. The trumpet sounds. But the, the Jubilee says that the land will return to its original state. What was the Temple Mount originally? It was a threshing floor that David bought. Mm-hmm. In Hebrew, the word for threshing floor is the word goren. The guy who sounds the trumpet on the threshing floor on the Temple Mount is named Rabbi Goren or Rabbi <laughs> Threshing Floor, and he's born with that name. Now think about that, and and he's born in the year 1917, the other Jubilee. So now he's 50 years old, sounding the sound of the Jubilee. It's his Jubilee, and the name Goren has one other meaning. It means the horn. So here is Rabbi Horn sounding the horn on the threshing floor. The, the, the child was born in the year of Jubilee, 1917, and it, think about it. His name means his horn. Thresh 
threshing floor. It's going to be fulfilled when he gets to the threshing floor, sounds the horn in the year of Jubilee. Unbelievable. I normally don't have to take naps after interviews. <laughs> but, Jonathan, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just exhausted already. So, There's let, so much. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk. We, and this goes to where we are now. Okay, I mean, I want to get there. So yes. where do you want to go from here? Because okay. I don't well, yeah, well, what happens is that, you know, when, when you go back in the Jubilee, it's not as you go back to your land. You, you get the right. You're recon, it's recognized. You get the legal right, you know. But, well, when Israel came back to Jerusalem, they never did get that. The whole world refused to recognize it. You know, uh, the United Nations never did. And that, but that was broken when, when President Trump, from the White House, issued the Jerusalem Declaration, for recognizing Jerusalem, first time in any president, first time in American history, first time in modern history. Actually, it's the first time since ancient times that there's any leader who ever did this. You got to go back to the days of Cyrus, really. And and the thing was with the thing is, you know, the declaration that Trump issued actually follows the pattern of Cyrus's declaration. But so so when did it happen? Well, well, what happens if you count for the next jubilee? 1967 add 50 years takes you to the year 2017. That is exactly when the Jerusalem Declaration is issued. The legal right is issued, and and Trump. I'm sure that Donald Trump is not studying the original Hebrew of Leviticus, no. yet, yet he fulfilled it in the year. But listen to this. You know, I said that when the Jubilee comes, you know, it says the trumpet sounds. You got to have, you got to have the, you know, the horn and the, all that. Well, well, what, what does our president's name mean in English? It means the trumpet. So think about it. The trumpet. Trump means it. Think about that. When does he come to power? In the year of Jubilee. If you have a year of Jubilee, you got to have a trumpet. So, so the Trump, Trump, 2017, the Trump is lifted up in the year of Jubilee. So he becomes president, and he starts sounding. This it shall sound throughout the land. Well, he hasn't stopped sounding since. He, even he tweets sometimes. But, but the thing is that he sounds throughout the land, and it says when the Trump sounds, what happens in the year of Jubilee? The right of return goes to the original owner. That's exactly what happened. And I'll tell you something else here. This is a you know, but if you go if you go back to the day that he was born, Trump was born. It doesn't matter what what you think of Trump. It's God. I mean, that's what matters. Not what the thing is. That he's born. It's a Friday. That means the scrolls are opened. And there's an appointed word. Now, I'm not going to go into it, except that the word that's appointed, that, that I put this in the oracle, but the word that's appointed is it, it's the mystery of his life. It's like his whole life is waiting for that jubilee year. In fact, the guy in the other jubilee, Rabbi Horn, the reason why he had a, a trumpet, a shofar, was because he was reading the, the, the scripture that was appointed for Donald Trump's birth. So you got Rabbi Horn and you got President Trump in each jubilee. <laughs> Again, I mean, this is, the, you know, in the Bible, God chooses people it gives them names for what they're appointed for wow wow so and, John, and, yeah, oh, go yeah. ahead jonathan yeah i need no, an extra thought well, going well just to say to think about the ramifications of this that it means that that donald trump you know had to be born when he was had to be had to become that there had to be an american election just before the year 2017 so there was and he had a win because you know it doesn't work so much to say that the hillary will sound Right. <laughs> All right. The um, the mystery of the oracle. How is it going to relate to just everyone who's listening, and then whoever's yes. going to step yes. out and get your book? Okay. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, yeah. Now we, we the door we just were in is is behind the fifth door, and there's so much of that's where what's happening now. The mystery behind that. But when you go to the sixth door, it talks about what's going to happen or the future. And so the oracle is it, the this mystery is is about the end times. It's really the key. It's also about the about each of our lives. And let me ask you something, Bill. Before I do this, about how much time do we have just left? Oh, uh, just about three minutes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll 
I'll tell you this. It's the secret of the end times of what's happening in the news every single day, um, what's from Israel to America to the culture to the culture war. Every single thing is part of this mystery, and it's ultimately leading up to one more jubilee or one more return. And think about it. All these returns, that means somebody else is returning. The ultimate jubilee is when the king comes back to his ancestral possession, which is the kingdom. And that's when Messiah's feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. That's the ultimate jubilee. And, and it even leads into Revelation and eternity. But here's the thing. This is all about your life. When you get to the seventh door, it's the mystery of everyone who's listening right now. Your whole life is linked to the jubilee. Because we have all fallen, and we've all lost something. We've all lost paradise, and we've all lost the life that God called us to. And yet, what is salvation? It's coming home. It's returning. It's restoration. It's that Jesus is the jubilee. So when it gets to the end, it talks about what is the destiny for your life? And because God has called you, everybody listening, for restoration, to, 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 to become, and it gets into how to become, how to find the life that God has called you to find and to live and to become that person and apply all this, the reality of God, to your life to overcome, for breakthrough, and to live a life of victory. Because, listen, this is telling you something. The oracle is saying God is real. God is alive. God is true. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. The word of God is true. And the same God who brings victory to his people is going to bring victory to you as you walk in his will. Jonathan, I made a big mistake booking you for a half hour. I should have booked you for a half day. <laughs> easy. <Yeah. laughs> easy. I, I've done, Bill, I've done, I've, I've done six hours, this, and we didn't even touch the half of it in, on different shows, so absolutely. But thank you. Yeah. Um, is, is it okay, Bill, if I tell people how, can, how they can get it? Oh, please. Yeah. Well, well, just this here. We just touched the surface, but the Oracle is everywhere. So if you, wherever there are books, it's there. If you go online, Amazon and online, you can get it right now. Or wherever books are from Walmart to anywhere else, you can get it. But I'm praying also people don't just get it for themselves. Um, people are being blown away. I'm blessed. But get it for your friends also who are not believers because it's the, who don't know the reality of God because it's an explosion of the reality of God and people are getting saved. So that's my prayer. Wow, that's awesome. Jonathan, thank you so much. You've been an absolute delight. My blessing. Yep. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day. My guest has been Jonathan Kahn. His book, The Oracle, The Jubilee and Mysteries Unveiled. Well, I really hope you enjoyed the show today because what uh, a great interview with Jonathan Kahn to hear that again. And all my other guests just once again make it a great Tuesday. Thanks for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are simply the very, very best. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow.